0: Thank you. Welcome, welcome back to Unfiltered with Bob Z. And today we have a, a very special guest. Um, he is Delegate Don Scott of the 80th District, representing our beloved sister city, Portsmouth. And so um, he's here and we're going to have a, uh, what I always promise is an unfiltered conversation. So we, we try to give it to you that way and we, you know, the show is called Unfiltered. So um we're gonna just jump right in and my first question is uh, uh delegate Scott, you have a very interesting story. Um I, I heard it before, but I think it's your life journey is just, you know, is it, just really something that um I guess people have a different perspective of um the soul or so-called American dream. But you know, I just think that we have dreams in general and you know, and and, and that we wanna aspire to and things heights that we wanna reach to. So I'm, I'm not going to tell it, but how has your life's journey influenced you as a delegate?
1: Um, thank you for having me, first of all. This is uh, great to be here. Uh, I'm going to try to stay unfiltered. Some of my story need to be filtered, though. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I've learned in my journey in life is uh-huh. um, you need people. Right. You need people to have your back. That's why you and I get along so well, Indeed. because Indeed. you know we know how to support one another, and we know how to check each other, Right, uh, and you always need people like that on your team. Uh, my life's journey is a little different. I'm originally from uh, Houston, Third Ward, uh, grew up single mom, six kids. Um, but we also had that country influence. We would go back and forth to a little town called kind of Jasper, Texas. You may know Jasper. <laughs> Jasper. That's where Robert Byrd was put on the back of the truck.
0: And oh, and that's drag. where I remember that name from. That's where I remember and that name. So
1: from. I have a that, That's part of my perspective. Race is always a very powerful, um, uh, overbearing, sometimes burden in America that we don't like to talk about. Right. You know. So a lot of my uh, influences and things that have happened to me. I can't deny that race paid some role, but I also can't pay, deny the fact that uh, a lot of whites and Latinos and others have helped me as well. Right. Um, my journey, um, you know, get, get straight to the point. I mean, I, I went to prison before um, after um, I graduated from, from college and mm-hmm. was in law school and left law school, graduated and went straight to prison mm. uh, on a drug charge. Uh, and I could, we can talk about the justice and injustice of that or not, but it was a 10 year right. sentence. Uh, I did seven years of some change in federal prison and uh, got lucky enough to come out and and meet a great woman, have good family support. And, uh, you know, the society tries to tell people that you're done. Right. And uh, I never knew. I never thought I would be done. Even growing up as a kid, and a lot of people won't believe this, but I knew I was going to go to jail one day, even though I was doing everything right at the time. I just thought that that's what. That's one of the rites of passage wow. that you go through. You have to deal with law enforcement at some point, and either you're going to go to jail or you may get lucky enough just to maybe get abused and not go to jail. But something's going to happen, and so how do you bounce back? So I'd always been prepared to do that. Uh, got out of uh, there and uh, worked at a corporation for, a long, for, for several years, maybe uh, like uh, from 02 to 15. Decided to take the Virginia bar. Uh, I graduated from law school in 94, never practiced. I passed the Texas bar and went to jail. So I never wow. got to practice. I got sworn in. Uh, I've only taken two bar exams in my when life. I took one in 94 and one in 2014, 20 wow. years apart, and passed them both the first time. That's, that's, so that's I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. But I also know that it takes work and discipline. It's not so much intelligence. And a lot of times we tell our people that you have to be smart. And what I tell people is that you have to be committed. Commitment beats brains. There's a lot of smart people out here, but they weren't committed to it, so they don't get it done. So one of the things that uh, that I think you have to do is do that. And then you got to get good people on your team. So my how all this influenced me being a delegate is that I advocate for what they call the least of these. Amen. You know, some of these people always talk about you know their Christian values and what they believe, and I and I just can't see it. So my whole thing is, you know. I'm, I'm, I, I want to see your values walking. How do you help people? How do you work with people? Right. And one of the things that being a delegate and which has made me want to run is that I saw, I think I had a contribution to give in my experience. And just so, you know, one of these folks say, look at God. One of those things is, I was already talking criminal justice reform prior to me running because of my life's experience. See? And now everything that's culminated put me in the right place at the right time. So now my message resonates. So the same bills that were being uh, voted down last session are now coming back up to be voted on and being asked for, they're asking for me to bring those bills back and asking to partner with me on these bills around police accountability, around criminal justice reform, around giving people earned time credit if they earn it while they're there to do. Either we believe in rehabilitation or, or we, we don't. don't right. You can't have it both ways. So uh, now I have people who want to work with me on those things, and that's informed my, my life's experiences. And I'm an attorney, so obviously right, I get yes. that get blessing and I get to see that, and I see it from a different perspective. I see all aspects of the criminal justice system and the civil justice system. So.
0: And so that's, that's, that's coming went. up next week? Or when it, it's, we go it's a back in the special session? session August 18th. August 18th. Okay. And um, right.
1: we have some limited bills. We're dealing with the COVID-19 issues around budget. Mm-hmm. And we'll also be dealing with criminal justice reform, police accountability. Right. Uh, oh, my God. You know, I was already into that stuff before it became <laughs> sexy. You know what I mean? So I'm glad to see everybody coming on. You know, uh, I don't mind you letting me push it uphill and you jump on a ride down with us. And that's okay. That's because that's what we need right now.
0: You know, I can really, I can really, really relate to what you're saying. You know, when we talk, I think we talk you know, I think it's, um, you know, similar spirits, you know, where, you know, where we can just recognize because I always tell people I spent my entire adolescence trying not to become a felon, you know, and I, and, and I, and I you know, I, and so people will say, well, you know, if you do things for the community, they'll say, well, you know, you're a great guy and all that. And I'm like, ah, I don't know if all, you know, all oh, that's true about being a great guy. But what I do know is that. I feel like I owe. You know, I feel like I owe. So that's my motivation. And and while, you know, I didn't fall prey, I I didn't, you know, go to prison, but, you know. um, I I had Well. Knock on wood. No, I'm
1: joking.
0: No, I'm, I'm, (laughs) man. (laughs) After this air, I don't know. It's unfiltered. Uh But no, um, so, you know, but I did fall prey to other things. You know, I had, you know, issues, like Mm everybody else had, you know, issues with drugs, different things. So, you know, but I still feel like the things you do is like, you know, has your way of paying the, your debt to society. Right. Now traditionally people say they that's think right. a debt to society right. is going inside. But you know, you have, you have a debt to society. Right. If so, you're conscious. If you're conscious, if you're conscious. And you know, and so I try to, I try to push that narrative because you know, that's, you know, when you say that, that's what I believe. So when you say, look at God, you know, I could be looking at Don Scott, or looking at the wonderful things and the fruit that, that's produced in an individual. And so, right now, you say you're going back in a special session. Mm-hmm. What? How do you feel, particularly as a delegate? This is another delegate question. We, That's fine. we can we can talk on all levels. But uh, how do you feel the Commonwealth has responded to the uh, COVID-19 crisis?
1: You know, unfortunately, we have a president of these United States that basically said, I, I'm not going to be held responsible for this. I don't want to be accountable. And I don't think any intelligent person would blame the president for COVID-19 happening. Right. Nobody would do that. That would, be, that would be ignorant. But I think any intelligent person would have to hold him accountable for the response that we've had to COVID-19. So the fact that there's been no federal national response for this thing that we're calling a war, you know, when we have wars, we mobilize right. yeah, we all, all hands on deck, and we come up with a national solution, and we hadn't done that. So, yeah. but I think that the Commonwealth, you know, and, and, I, and I have to give the governor some credit. Thank God I think he's the only medical doctor that's governor of a state. So because of that, I think he has responded the best way uh, possible moving forward. It's never perfect because you have so many competing interests. There are people in the business community who are being impacted there are people in uh development and real estate that's being impacted there are the essential workers now that we know are essential that we've always knew were essential but we took them for granted uh that are being impacted there are families being hurt by this so i think um there the commonwealth i think has done a good response i think the national response has been abysmal
0: and and i I must certainly agree with you with that um one of the things i wanted to touch on and and it was and it's kind of uh it's unfiltered but you know um Over the last three years, and I'm just, you know, I've been watching uh, state politics all my life, you know, state, national, local, that's just a hobby for me. So, I know that, like, the current climate, and and in the last three years, I'm thinking, like, wow, we have uh, decriminalization of marijuana, we've had so many things go our way in the Commonwealth, and I'm like, I don't know if it has something to do with the the alleged you know, photos of, of, of the governor, you know, or whatever, but I do know that the, the, the things that we've gotten done uh, in the Commonwealth that we have long, I mean, long time, we've been seeking a lot of different things that have happened, and I'm like, wow, you know. And so my question is, um, how do you, you view, um, I guess, the, just given the, the history of the, this is the bedrock of the Confederacy this was the bedrock. Is, so yeah. inequality, how do you how do you feel like we're addressing the inequality issue?
1: I, I think we still have a long ways to go. I mean, it, it, the fact that you would believe that we've done so much, which we have, that just tells you how bad it was. How far
0: back we so, were, yeah.
1: And we still have a long ways to go. You know, uh, Virginia, 1619, you know, they yes. put this, they invented this thing. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, uh, and Virginia, Richmond was the, the cradle of the Confederacy, the capital of the Confederacy. Capital, yeah. um, Virginia has a a unique history in the racial story of America. Mm -hmm. And so it should be Virginia that leads us out of that past. Virginia should be setting a standard, an example of what uh, true equality looks for and looks like. So I think we have an opportunity. Matter of fact, I think we have a responsibility to lead the nation the same way they led us into this mess. They should be leading us out of this mess. And that's what the way I look at Virginia is opportunity.
0: That's a, that's, I never thought of it that way. I, you know, that's, that's very, very sensible. That if you were the, if, you know, if you were the first to do this, then you should be the first, first in, first out. You broke it, you fixed it. <laughs> yes, That's right. Um, well, since we, I think we touched on, uh, you know, some issues with incarceration. And um, I just want to know what you think about if the, um, is there a direct correlation with systematic racism, and and we know it is, but I want you kind of to expound on it with the uh, increased size of the prison population. Well,
1: I think you either have to, there are two notions in mind. Either you have to buy into that uh, all black people are criminal, Mm. and therefore we we should be incarcerated at a higher level because we're more likely to be criminals, which is why we are 19% of Virginia's population, but we're 55% of Virginia's Department of Corrections population. Wow. So you have to ask yourself, either are we really a people that are made up, born day one to be criminals? Or are we a products of this environment and are we over-policed and is the system rigged against us from day one? So by the time we get in the game, it's already rigged. So you either have to buy into the notion of white supremacy, which you would justify 19% of the population making up 55% of the Department of Corrections. Or you have to accept the notion. I I would suggest you have to accept the notion that this is a systemic racist system from cradle to death that gets us in this system more often than not. Now, why would I say this? Within a mile of where we are now, there are children who literally will grow up by the time they won't get the first choice of where they go to school or where they live until they're 18, 19 years old. Everything that they do right now is dictated by their zip code where they were born, what education they will get, what teachers they will get, whether the students they will sit next to, all of that is dictated by the nature of the color of their skin and the condition of their birth, socioeconomic economic status. So you have to ask yourself, how did we get here? And if you do a deep dive, you don't have to do a deep dive, do a mini dive, skim the surface. Mm, okay. You'll have to say that it's based on the fact that the racist policies that got us here. We got to understand that when World War II and World War I were fought, and they came back with the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe, right. they didn't rebuild black America. Uh-huh. When they came up and said you would get the GI Bill, the GI Bill and the and the VA loan and all that stuff, that was denied to those black veterans. Indeed. So that was a middle class, uh, subsidized program for white America to grow and prosper that we were not beneficiaries of, and that's how we get to where we are now. So
0: And it's created generational wealth for them as well.
1: Generational wealth and generational misery and poverty for us. Exactly. And that leads to, you know, there are studies around poverty and incarceration rates that go hand in hand, you would be surprised to know, look it up. Don't believe me. Don't take my word. Uh There's a Pew Research study that shows that the top 10 zip codes for incarceration rate, top 10 zip codes that they do about, they do them all across the country. But three of the top 10 zip codes in the country are in the state of Virginia. Three. I I grew up in one. (laughs) Norfolk has one.
0: Two, three, five, zero, four. or 5
1: Portsmouth's number two or three. Is it? Portsmouth has 23701, which is number one or two in the country. Look, Portsmouth, Virginia. Right, For right. zip codes by incarceration rate. Right. Norfolk is in the top ten, and Richmond has a zip code in the top ten. Right. And Virginia, probably in the top 30, has about six or seven. We are a state that is based on making sure that we keep our foot on the neck of those who
0: are already down. Right. And not only that, there's called it's a thing called hot spots. And when I was uh, working as a re-entry specialist, there's a thing called hot spots and, and Norfolk, Portsmouth and Richmond, the same cities that you name, they have the highest they call them hot spots because they're where when people are released from prison, that's where they that's where they live at. That's where they go after they've been incarcerated. And you know, it's one right on the corner, right, 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 right back here. It's one right on the corner and, and of course Portsmouth and Richmond. So you know, and, and and it's it's just incredible. Um, but but recently, I noticed that several, like eleven Commonwealth attorneys, you know, uh, banded together and formed an organization. And you know, I, I look, I said, wow, you know, this is this is different. And so they founded a, a, a organization that was, um, I, I think, it was put together to ensure due process and, you know, to. Um, check I think out.
1: they call it the. I'm not sure the name. I think they call themselves prez, prez, Progressive Commonwealth Attorneys progressive, Organization, yeah. something like that. Um, and I think Norfolk and Portsmouth, my city. They, they uh, did. Mrs. Morales is a member, uh-huh. and I think. And Mr. Underwood. Uh, and Mr. Underwood, and I think um, there are several. Um, uh, I think they. I think the data that they had said they represent either 60 percent or 40% 42%, of, all of, of all of Virginia's 40, population by 42%, city. Yeah. So they represent a lot of the urban communities. And so the, I think it's good that they are responding to the will of their communities mm-hmm. and that they are looking at criminal justice from the top to the bottom in a different perspective. And that's what we need. We need people in those positions of authority and power to recognize that there may be a better way than to try to incarcerate ourselves out of some of the problems, you know back in the 80s and early 90s when you and I were youngsters. I remember. And, and, you know, it was a crack epidemic. Oh, man. And they didn't hesitate to criminalize black bodies immediately and then build this mass incarceration system. But now when it's heroin and opioids and prescription drugs and the abusers and the are mostly white folk,
0: right. it's,
1: now it's a health crisis. It's a,
0: it's, yeah, it's
1: we a, knew it was a health crisis then. A terrible health crisis but then. But now we are doing the right thing. So I don't begrudge them for coming around. I know why they came around and we can't be naive about that. But I think now is an opportunity for all of us to benefit from the new perspective around this is a healthcare issue, this is a, this is a disparity issue, this is a depression issue, this is a suicide issue around the drugs. So I'm happy to see that the Commonwealth attorneys uh, who have signed on are changing their perspective or, or, or being able to take the leadership to enforce the perspective they already had when they ran. Some of them already believed that they, that they needed to make change and I'm glad to see that they're, they're galvanizing around those, those voices.
0: Right. Um, <laughs> Defund the police. Now, you know, that's, that, that was a phrase that, it didn't really mean to defund the police from my perspective, it meant to reallocate funds that could be used uh, in, in, in other areas of uh, crime prevention. Um, you know, and, and from, I guess the, the question is, um, when we talk about community policing, you know, I guess that's another one of the the initiatives. When you know, it's certain it's certain in, this, in what we call the Great Awakening. I guess since the tragedy of uh, George Floyd, I guess there's been a Great Awakening, and, and not only just um, in this country, but you know, worldwide. You know, it's like it's like you know, they was like, oh, America, look, you know, what you doing? What you doing, America? You know, and for uh, you know, that was that was you know, that was I thought it was great. I thought it was great. But what do you think that? Um, you know, with those initiatives, and what are your take on how our resources should be, should they be reallocated, or, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you feel about that?
1: First of all, I, I will say this, I think you're right about people saw the death and murder mm-hmm. of George Floyd happening so callously, and so indifferent, and so in a way that, knew, that you knew that you had done this so many times, there was no way you are gonna be held accountable, because you've gotten away with it so many times. Nobody would hold you accountable, even with witnesses yelling. So um, I think the rest of the world responded and saw that and resonated, not just talking about, oh, America, look at you. They were sending a message to their own leaders, where they are, those who are being uh, devalued and marginalized, saying we we, we can identify with this type of thing, with those in power who don't acknowledge our humanity. And that's what that was about. But uh, defund the police is a phrase that I don't use uh, because I know that you know, where I live, there are people who call the police and need the police to show exactly. up and respond, yeah. but they need police officers to show up and respond who are guardians of the community, right. who are protectors right. of the community and not see themselves as hunters in the community. Mm-hmm. They need people who live in the community who have the same cares and concerns of the community. If you see in yesterday's paper in Norfolk, only 25% of your officers live here. In right. my city in Portsmouth, the chief of police doesn't even live in the city. Only a small percentage How of the is citizens... That don't get me started <laughs> the, and and, and uh, many other uh, police officers that don't live let alone with virginia some most of them they don't even in, they don't even live in virginia they live in some of them a lot of them live in north carolina so we have a a, a disconnect between the people that are supposed to be serving the, the you know protect and serve right or serve and protect the way i like to say it uh are and those who who live in those communities so if you don't know and you're not going to the grocery store and you're not going to church and you're not going to places with these folks, how do you know them? Only time you see them is when you're responding to something and not, not on their worst day, if it's a crime or some tragedy, right. so you get to start judging all of the citizenry with the same thing because you don't, even the best trained person, if you see the same thing all the time, you're gonna start detaching, you're emotionally detaching and dehumanizing the people you have to deal with every day. So, I, I mean, I think we need to do more about getting a diverse force uh, and doing some things. And one of the things I wanted to talk about as we move forward in the legislature is, is barrier, barriers. You know, brothers were young, had a misdemeanor or something else. Right. Time right. has passed. They, and, and he knows still, the community and working in the community. Why can't he be a, a law enforcement person? Right. Exactly. We need, to, we need to look at some of this stuff. Because some of these people I see doing law enforcement, they should never have gotten a badge. They don't have the disposition. They don't have the temperament. They don't have a love for people to be a police officer. It shouldn't be one.
0: You know, one of the things that, that I've been pushing, because it um, and, and just seems like in every— it is either two excuses that when, when, when things go left or when, when things go awry or there's an a, a unarmed black man killed or an unarmed black person killed, it's two things that they'll say. That's the first thing is going to be, um, I was, that's how I was trained. You know, then the, the second thing was I, I was in fear for my life. You know, Those are always the two excuses that are used. And so what I like to see is, and, and then it's, it's always that, that they're not minorities on a police force. And so what I like to see is less, they're trained wrong, if you ask me. And I, and I, and I tell them, I say, you, you if you're being trained by the same person who did the same thing 20 years before you, that had the same practices, and now he's training you, you're trained wrong. And if you're looking at four minorities, you have four HBCUs around here that graduate every May and every December, bachelor's degree students in criminal justice. You know, every six months is a a graduating class. If you're looking for people who are, you know, they they know the constitution, they, you know, things that you are taught, I teach criminal justice, so I, I know that there are things that on the undergraduate level, so I think if they had a better educated force, if they really wanted to, to get minority candidates, you know, that would be, you know, a, a, a proven ground. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at that, but you know, with their training, I just feel like they should they should do a better job of training and and and. So, what, what do you think, I, I think the
1: training the training is good. They probably need more de-escalation. They do a lot. But I believe in crisis, what's in you will come out.
0: Okay. I don't
1: care how much training you've had. True that. If you're, if you're predisposed to, to, and biased against black folk and you get the opportunity, or you're afraid of black people, Right. and you get the opportunity, right. or you dare somebody black challenge you and he's running away with a taser that he took from you and you shoot him in the back as a young man was in Georgia. That was true. Cool. I mean, that is part of the mindset and no amount of training is going to prevent that that is within you from coming out in crisis. And so mm-hmm. I think that's an excuse. Uh, and I think we need to do a better job of, of, of recruiting officers. I mean, I don't know anybody, and I guarantee you most boys, maybe a lot of girls, but most boys, when they see the police growing up when they was kids, they wanted to be a police officer. Oh no. No, no, when you, I mean, no, when you were a little kid, I mean, oh, okay. when you were a very With little kid and, and you saw the cars, fire truck yeah, yeah, and the police car yeah, yeah, and you yeah, saw the yeah, sirens yeah. and you wanted that thing. You say, I'm going to be that. I want to be a police officer. I want to be a firefighter. That looks fun. But as you get older and you see the, the misuse and the abuse of power, you're like, no way. You know, yeah. I tell people all the time, some of my colleagues who didn't come from my communities and don't understand. I say, y'all grew up when something went wrong, y'all would say, oh, thank God somebody called the police. In my community, it would be, oh, hell, who called the police? It's like, no matter how bad it was, you didn't call the police. And so I think, you know, that we need to rekindle and get, get a love for community and police officers back in our community. Because, but that love has to be reciprocal. You know what I mean? If, if we can do that, we can build a better community uh, and have more cooperation in our communities when crimes do occur. And when we need help and more intervention ahead of time but as long as we have police right now to me because they're being criticized Mm -hmm. they don't get criticized well they don't take criticism Uh, uh, so the first uh, thing they do is they have a siege mentality it's us us against them so now we start having these blue lives matter and all this kind of stuff because we said we were hurt now you gotta act like you the victim we're not gonna answer the call and so (laughs) are we gonna take strikes are we taking out like they did in atlanta yeah they got the blue flu and all that so at the end of the day they, we got to get out of that grievance. You don't see anybody walk around, when a doctor gets sued. You don't see nothing like doctor's lives matter. When a doctor <laughs> gets sued, when a lawyer gets sued, right, you don't right, have lawyers, right, right. lawyers' lives matter. They don't lose. We, they're the only profession that when something happens, we started this new movement. I mean, I bet you, I mean, you look at some data, I think more taxicab drivers get killed per year, Uber drivers. You know uh, what I mean? I should drive so, Uber. So there you go. Right. So, you know, they, they get hurt and assaulted. And, and you know, and, and, I mean, it's a dangerous job. But this is the job they signed up for, so you know there are guys right now standing watching the military somewhere in a foreign land, and they not whining. So, right. so do your job. Right. Everybody do your job, but don't do the job.
0: You know, um, one of the things that, that I thought about, and I, I'm going to get your take on this, is is is, is workforce housing. And I know that's probably on the city level, and you know you're on the state level, but it's, you know, you're a, you're a wise man. So, hmm. um, <laughs> well, I think so. So. Workforce housing would include, you know, when, when they're talking redevelopment, let's just talk about in Norfolk, let's say uh, Place Huntersville, they have uh, 400 vacant lots. Mm-hmm. And so my concept was that, you know, why not have teachers uh, firefighters, um, police, so, uh, you know, uh, people that teach at Norfolk State, people that teach at ODU, you know, where, where if you're trying to really change a neighborhood, if you're really trying to redevelop a neighborhood, what we're missing is middle class, I think. I think particularly in this area you have, like, a working class and, and more underserved communities and then you have more affluent, but it's not a real strong middle class. But the concept is that if teachers lived in the communities, because none of you know, there's a great disparity of teachers that teach in Norfolk and Portsmouth that, that actually live in the city, and like you were just saying, the police officers as well. If you lived in Norfolk, then you would be patrolling your streets, or if you lived in Portsmouth, you would be patrolling. They would be your streets, and not just in theory. So, what is what's your concept?
1: On I mean, that? I agree. I think we need to create some tax incentives for teachers and other uh, and law enforcement and first responders to have some, some reasons to entice them, incentivize them coming in those communities. And I think there are some ways we can do that. So we really need to be creative about that. And the same thing with, with you know, if I see, you know, teachers and police to me have a lot in common. And mm. there's a lot of demographics in common. They all work for government, but they got these special unions and right. they get special services. No offense to any teachers. I love teachers. But they got the same racial demographics. we become more diverse 80% of the teachers in America are white. I did not know that. And so, yeah, and so you, we start seeing wow. why the mess, who's teaching these people that grow up to feel like they can put their knee on somebody's neck? Wow. Where are the values coming from in the classroom that values everybody? How's that being affirmed? And because we don't, we have a problem with teachers we, that, that's, so that we have a problem there. We have a problem with connecting with parents. So if you take a look at who, I mean, that's why I talk about systemic structural racism. Right. And, it, and people become so immune to it. You, don't even, you didn't even know that number about teachers. I had no that, idea. That's who's teaching our children every day. And so you wonder why your child might have a self-esteem problem it's because that teacher might only be calling on them when they don't know the answer. You know what I mean? So there are things that you can do to destroy someone's self-esteem and promote someone else's to a child that they don't even realize you're doing. By the time you they get through, they never know that that teacher messed them up long back. So we need more diversity in classrooms. We need curriculum to be looked at. We got to stop teaching that, you know, that, that Robert E. Lee was a hero and was right, fighting for right, his country yeah. and was only went to serve his state. That is their version of history. Right. You know what I mean? And we need to start telling a our version if they don't want it to be the truth they don't want to say that's the truth okay fine let's tell our version because y'all been telling y'all version long enough and that's what got us in this okay. mess so that's that's my take on, on on workforce housing and the people who get the benefit from those tax incentives that you're discussing
0: right right well okay that was starting to unfiltered <laughs> uh keeping in line with but i do have uh i do have a question uh this 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 pandemic has um i think it's kind of hit this hit some of the tax base Uh, As far as, um, you know, the local and state governments, you know, it's kind of um, put a strain. So my next question is that... um, the legalization of marijuana, do, uh, you know, you, do you feel like that that's going to come up soon, and would that help ease the pain of some of this uh, that was being caused by a pandemic uh, in relationship to guess as far as the coffers of the uh, state budget, or will that even play a factor, or is it just a social issue?
1: I, I think I think all of that is a great question. I am definitely for the decriminalization, which we did last time. I mean, I think we have some more work to do because at, at one point. That was a, um, an argument. I'll say a debate happening whether we should go full legalization mm-hmm. back last time, last session, right. or go decriminalization. Mm-hmm. I was on the decriminalization side. And mm-hmm. the reason I'm on the decriminalization side is I don't want to go full legalization until there's an apparatus in place whereby the people who've been punished traditionally right. Right. can now participate in this stuff being legal and make some money. Right. So right. if I was selling it illegally and I'm good at selling it. <laughs> Now you're going to let me out, but uh, you're going to say that if I have a felony, I can't, can't sell it. Sell it right. Well, my felony is for possession with intent to distribute marijuana. I'm right. good at that. Right. So now you're going to tell me that the skill set that I have, I can't do it because I got this, because I sold it illegally. Yeah. Who are you going to ask? So, so why not let me sell it legally now? You know what I mean? Right. I get that's it. like telling I get the it. bar owner doing prohibition that now liquor's legal, but you can't, you can't sell, sell the, it, the bootleg right. you've been selling. So at the end of the day, I think, you know, that's why I was against it, because we need to have an apparatus in place. Okay, that makes so sense. So we have equity. And I, I'm like, look, if ain't no black people gonna get rich when marijuana becomes legal, I'm right. against legalizing. I'm just telling y'all that right now.
0: Well, that, that so makes sense.
1: I'd uh, keep it decriminalized, but I don't wanna have our uh, money, our community be again, be the first consumers.
0: Right, right. You know what I mean? Man. We
1: need to participate in production, growth, production, marketing, distribution, the whole, whole nine. And when we put that in place, I'm off legalization.
0: Well, you've heard it right here Unfiltered with Bob Z and Delegate Don Scott of the 80th District in Portsmouth. Thank you very much and we'll talk to you later.